Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. When part of the Lemp Brewery complex collapsed this Sunday, it didn't just destroy a historic structure. It also destroyed 700-something bicycles. Those bikes were the property of St. Louis Bee Works and part of its mission. The nonprofit organization teaches children bicycle safety and provides them with a free, refurbished bike once they've completed their classes. Well, now hundreds of those bikes are gone. And joining us today to talk about what happened and what comes next is the board president for Bee Works. That's Wayne Brown. Wayne, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Sarah. So, Wayne, how did you learn that this building where you'd been storing all these bikes had suffered this major collapse? I got a call from Patrick Vandertine, our executive director, shortly after nine Sunday morning. And, and what went through your mind? I mean, this is not something you expect happening on your average lovely Sunday St. Louis morning. Well, I was uh, immediately thought of uh, having to deal with yet another challenge to um, BeeWorks fulfilling its mission. You say yet another challenge. Has this been a tough time for you guys even before this? Well, we have certainly had uh, issues dealing with the pandemic, uh, getting uh, retail bikes to our customers, getting them to um, getting them to have a chance to test out the bike before they buy it, Mm. uh, getting volunteers into the space to keep a a supply of refurbished children's bikes for our programs and adult bikes for our retail sales floor. Okay, so you were dealing with just a number of these sort of uh, challenges that everybody's dealing with across society, but they they certainly are are just a tough thing for any nonprofit to deal with. Then you find out there's been a building collapse. This was at 9 a.m. How long did it take before you had a sense of just how bad things were and, and start to understand the details? Well, fortunately, Patrick made it down there really quickly and sent me some photos and, you know, immediately uh, what ran through my mind is every single bike in there uh, was no longer of use to B-Works. Mm. It was just clear these, these bikes were gone. Yes, and, and that's, that's, our, um, that's how we're planning on proceeding uh, from here on out, uh, not having a chance to really inspect them, but just the thought of having to uh, remove them from the rubble evaluate them, clean them so they're safe for volunteers to process. It's just an overwhelming, um, uh, it'd be an overwhelming task. So it, it seemed safer just to count it as a total loss. That, that's our current plan. And did you have any concern at that point that somebody might have even been in this building? Obviously a much bigger loss if, if that had been the case. Yes, absolutely. So I was really relieved to find out that, that nobody was was injured. We do have our own personnel and uh, volunteers in the building periodically to move donated bikes in and out. And we are so fortunate that it did not happen when uh, either our volunteers or employees or or uh, local residents were nearby the building. Yeah, and I, I guess that's sort of a, a big question here is, um, you know, this timing in some ways was so fortunate. You didn't have anyone in there, but you easily could have. Did you have any idea this building was in such bad shape? Uh, not at all. Uh, so I was uh, with uh, the executive director uh, when the lease was signed in 2017, and we had no uh, clue that uh, according to the news reports that it had been condemned in 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems crazy that there was a condemnation, I guess, four years before you even moved in. So the owner didn't say anything about that to you? Nobody from the city ever said, hey, maybe you don't want to put all your bicycles in there? 
And yeah, we had no knowledge whatsoever of the of the shape and condition of the building. Okay, and and from your perspective of of having been in that building, did it seem okay on on the days you were in there? Well, it, when it was built, uh, the craftsmen did a fantastic job, and and certainly probably overbuilt it hmm. uh, when it was when it was initially put up, uh, but uh, as it, as all buildings do, uh, degrade with time, um, and uh, with our staff members not being uh, educated on on evaluating the structure of buildings, we we thought it was was perfectly fine for our use. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, that building. It's I mean, it's not in the center of town or anything, but it's not hidden. You, you guys had people going in and out, and it sounds like no one ever said anything. It just it seems kind of odd. It does. It's uh, it's unfortunate, certainly. Have you thought about, I mean, have you since then followed up with this landlord that you had a lease with? Uh, we have had some communications with him. I have not had any direct communications. Everything has gone through uh, Patrick. Okay. And is there any sense of, um, <laughs> I mean, is, is he trying to say on here, this again is your executive director, uh, Patrick uh, van der Tyn, um, has, has he relayed anything that, that suggests what the explanation is for why this building was being used? Uh, you mean, in other words, being used while it had been uh, uh, condemned? Yeah, as, as um, you know, the he, city representing that it shouldn't have been used, and yet, obviously, the landlord gave you guys permission to use it. Yes, we were we were under the impression that uh, because it was strictly being used for storage, that it didn't have uh, regular occupants on an ongoing basis. Mm. Uh, that that no um, no occupancy permit was necessary. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I can see how you guys would have would have come to that conclusion. So, well, it's just it's a terrible thing. And, and I guess it's so good. No one was there. But you did have these bicycles here. I keep hearing the number 700. Is that a precise number? Is that more of an estimate? Uh, that's an estimate based on um, the um, inventory that we've seen over the past. We we recently had a uh, bike drive uh, at the farmer's market for the city uh, for uh, Lake St. Louis and put quite a few bikes in there and rearranged them. And, and uh, so I, I had been in the building in the last uh, month and a half and, mm-hmm. and saw, the, uh, saw the inventory. So it was, it was filled up with hundreds of bicycles. Were these bikes all refurbished and ready to go? What kind of uh, condition were they in prior to this? So the bicycles that were at the uh, warehouse, um, probably 95% were as they were received. Uh, we had gone through some of the uh, OFO bikes, the, the bike share bikes that we got uh, uh, a year or so ago, and those had been refurbished and stored there, but most of them were, like you said, just uh, right as we received them okay. in, in a variety of conditions. And so what would have been the plan for these bikes if they hadn't, uh, if the building hadn't suffered this collapse? So about 100 of the bikes were destined for our sales floor. Uh, the bikes that we refurbish typically sell for between 150 and 225 bicycle, uh, 225 dollars rather. So that uh, they represented a significant amount of revenue for our organization. Uh, we had uh, quite a few uh, children's bikes that we refurbished to use on our programs. Uh, we did get some bikes that aren't in good enough condition to be refurbished, and so we use those for parts to. Uh, number one, uh, rebuild some of the bicycles, and number two, we sell the parts for revenue to um, to people to help them fix their bikes. 
And then finally, uh, a large number of them are crated and shipped to third world countries to enable the locals with transportation. Okay, and so all of that is now gone. Um, that earn a bike program that some of these bikes were slated for, are you going to be able to still do that this year? Well, we d- because of uh, the pandemic, we don't have any plans to run our earn a bike programs this year, but we are moving forward with uh, plans to begin it again in 2021. Okay, so this won't change um, that. What about in terms of revenue? How big a loss of revenue is this that these would have been bikes you'd be able to sell? Well, so so 100 bikes at, let's say, um, uh, $200 a piece is uh, $20,000. Uh, so that revenue um, uh, w- w- would have been used to, number one, pay rent and utilities. Um, but we also use that revenue to fund one of the other programs we run out of the, out of our organization, which is the Earn a Computer program. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the past, we've been forced to buy some of the uh, monitors for our programs, and uh, now that revenue is, is lost. Well, I saw a number of people sharing a fundraiser on social media, um, even already on Sunday night. It looked like people wanted to do what they could to help. Is money uh, a big need right now, or would you rather just have an old bicycle? What <laughs> what would help you the most? Well, the challenge now with bicycles is not only do we lose close to 700 bikes or right around 700 bikes, we also lost our storage facility. Mm-hmm. So we do have some ability to store uh, donated bicycles today. Uh, we do have off-site locations that collect bikes for us, but uh, money can be used for a variety of different uh, needs in our organization, and that's probably the, probably the best uh, option for people. Because you guys are going to need to find uh, some new space and then find a way to pay for it. Absolutely, and uh, we had a really uh, we had really low rent at the last place, which was great. It was convenient. Um, it's likely going to be difficult for us to find something that uh, that attractive and uh, near our, near our shop. Okay. So uh, we'll need um, we'll need resources to help transport bikes. We may need to rent trucks to to move the the um, donated bicycles around and. So the the financial need is the greatest right now. Okay. Well, St. Louis Bee Works, you heard it here. They could really use your help. Um, Financial donations would be the most appreciated. I have to wonder, though, I think we did a a show um, a month or two ago where we talked to um, Big Shark Bicycles, and they talked about how there's just such a huge demand for bicycles right now. Gyms are closed. We're all stuck trying to entertain ourselves. They said you can't come by used bikes right now even if you want to. Is this just coming at a particularly tough time in that everybody's already hanging on to their bicycles and that, you know, having this much inventory smashed, um, this is going to be hard to replace on a number of levels. Wayne? Hi, uh, Wayne. I believe that we've lost Wayne. Um, Yes, it sounds that we have lost Wayne. Well, that is unfortunate. That was actually my last question for Wayne. So I am going to just um, bid him farewell. We are so grateful that St. Louis Bee Works president of the board, Wayne Brinkman, was able to join us today. And we do want to encourage you, if you're touched by their mission, uh, St. Louis Bee Works, you can find their website on our website. And our website is stlpublicradio.org. And they are looking for monetary donations. Coming up next, we're going to talk to St. Louis Magazine columnist Chris Nafziger about the long history 
history of the Lent Brewery building. And if you have a question or comment about this whole situation, we do want to encourage you to join us. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. And we will get to Chris Nafziger right after the break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com. Welcome back. We were talking just before the break about how St. Louis Bee Works was affected by the devastating collapse at the Lemp Brewery building on Sunday. But there's still a lot of questions that remain to be seen, and some of the big ones are, what actually collapsed on Sunday, and how did it get to that point anyway? Well, when we became interested in these questions, we knew there was no better person to consult than Chris Nafziger. He's an art historian, an architecture blogger at St. Louis Patna, and a columnist for St. Louis Magazine. And thanks to his knowledge and his generosity in sharing it. He's also become a frequent guest on this show. So Chris Nafziger, thank you for joining us again. Well, thanks for having me. So Chris, the only thing that most people seem to know about this Lemp Brewery building on Saturday, or on Sunday, sorry, was that it dated back to the 1860s. But I now understand that that's not even really true. So when was it built? And, and initially, what was it built for? So the building that collapsed on Sunday is, was known as the Malt Kiln, and it was part of a larger building that we call the Malt House. So it dates back, the first three stories of it dates back to about 1874 is when it was completed. Hmm. So that dates back to when William Lemp Sr. had taken control of the brewery when his father, Adam Lemp, died in 1862. So, it, so was, it was part of this brewery, and this was one of like the big significant breweries in St. Louis at the time. Yes, it was actually, when that building was built, it was actually larger than Anheuser-Busch. Wow. Uh, now, Anheuser-Busch quickly passed Lump by uh, in the 1880s, um, but when it was built, uh, the Lump Brewery, which was actually known as the Western Brewery at the time, was actually larger. <laughs> um, so it was a huge uh, state-of-the-art building. I think that's very important to realize. It was uh, very well built. I want to stress that. It was state-of-the-art, and it was actually originally three stories tall. You can actually kind of see there's sort of a line in the brick where you can kind of, it's very obvious that it's switched over. And in 1887, they added the additional upper stories. Now, they describe it in newspaper articles of the time as being an additional three stories, but you can kind of count, and it looks to be more like an, an additional four stories. Hmm. Um, so that building, it's, it's very important to realize that there's a lot of preparation that goes into brewing before they actually you know, add the yeast um, to what we call the wort or mash. So the malt house is where they would prepare the barley and the hops, and the kiln was actually where they dried out the ingredients. So that building that collapsed, it had to be built very sturdy because there were actually open flames in that building. There were kilns, and there actually would have been chimneys, which have actually since been torn down, that would have vented smoke. It would have been a very sort of dramatic building when it was in operation. It's interesting. And Hearing yeah. you describe this, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea that there was three stories of it, and then they went ahead, uh, what was that, like a decade later, and yeah. added a bunch on on top of it. Was this because they needed more capacity? or? Yes. Uh, 
1870s, 1880s in America was just this economic, you know, boom time. And it was in St. Louis as well. And the Lent Brewery was just growing exponentially as well. So there originally were three three-story kilns. And when they added on in 1887, they removed the central kiln and they expanded the east and west kilns to be six or seven stories tall. Hmm. And then that, that central space became sort of like the maintenance and access um, tower, for lack of a better way of describing it, so they could access um, what have, would have been these giant cast iron perforated uh, pads that they would have laid out the barley and hops on and the giant flames down at the bottom. And you can actually still see sort of the, the fireplaces so one of them obviously was almost certainly destroyed in the collapse of the western one and the flames would basically have sent heat up and smoke up through the six-story kilns and would have dried out the ingredients that then they would have taken over to the brew house across that alleyway. Hmm. The, the way you describe these, it sounds like they're almost like self-supporting cells in a way that they would have had to be fireproof. You know, they've got these huge furnaces in there, these giant kilns. Does that mean that even with the collapse of this part that collapsed, that the rest of it is almost sealed off from that? Yes, I would say, now, speaking as a historian, I would argue, I'm not a structural engineer, mm -hmm. um, however, I would argue that those two remaining cells, as I'm calling them, the, the, the access cell and then the eastern kiln, I would argue that they almost certainly were built to be self-supporting. They were built to, you know, as firewalls. And in fact, if you go and look um, in photographs, if you look really high up, you can actually see the steel fire doors are actually still hanging on for their hmm. dear lives. Um, those were fire doors that protected, uh, in case the flames got totally out of control, um, they could those fire doors were closed. And likewise, the malt house is just the south. Uh, there's a huge firewall in between the kilns and the malt house. And that's, I can guarantee you, is a very strong and very durable wall because they were obviously taking great care to make sure that flames, if it took over the malt kiln, it would not spread to that incredibly valuable um, and critically important to the brewing process, malt house. Hmm. So based on your understanding of this, and again, you're coming at this as a, as a historian, not an engineer, there right. might be some hope for uh, the bigger picture here. I hope so. And I hope that uh, certainly that the city of St. Louis and uh, the Lemp Brewery owners, um, and I know both of them, both parties, I hope that they can come to an understanding that they can save and even possibly restore um, the malt kilns and save it. It's important to realize um, that the malt kiln is the oldest surviving above ground structure in the Lemp Brewery complex. Mm -hmm. and in fact, it's probably one of the oldest um, malt kilns left in America. So I, I would really love to see it be saved. So you mentioned that you know the owner of this complex, and, and obviously with the news that happened on Sunday, there are a lot of people asking questions about him, but you have a knowledge of him that goes back before that. Who, who is he and, and what was he doing with this massive but so historically important structure? So the owner's name is uh, Shashi Palaman, and I've gotten to know him personally. And, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to him. And his father, Rao, actually used to work for Anheuser-Busch. It's really a great kind of American story. They came from India. Hmm. And, um, you know, sort of the American dream. And 
you know, I've heard a lot of trash talk about them and, and I've gotten to know them personally and they've talked to me passionately about their love of the history of the brewery and of the buildings. And, um, you know, honestly, these are massive masonry structures and they are not cheap to maintain. Oh, I can't even and imagine trying to maintain something like this. Even a 100-year-old house is is a nightmare to maintain. This is uh, yeah, 10 times that, more probably. Certain, that's very true. <laughs> and it was the old it is the oldest building on, you know, on the brewery grounds. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned this trash talk though that that has been aimed at at this owner. Is that something that even predated this collapse that people wanted oh, to see yeah, him do something you know, more with this? A great example is, um, so down at the corner um, of Cherokee and South Broadway, that is the second bottling house. Um, a beautiful building designed by the very famous uh, brewery architecture firm of Whitman, Walsh, and Boisselier. Um, You know, somebody was messing around on Google Satellite, and they noticed that, like, the roof had, uh, quote-unquote, collapsed. Well, in reality, what had happened is that, yes, it was not structurally stable anymore, so they had done... Uh, you know, a structural a deconstruction. Well, what nobody tells you is that then uh, the Palamans invested a huge amount of money, uh, close to a million dollars, if not over a million dollars, reconstructing the roof. And uh, they allowed me and photographer Jason Gray to go in there. And the roof that they built on the second bottling house is beautiful. Hmm. It is stunning. They spent extra money on higher quality wood and it's now actually, um, if you look at the licenses that have been uh, awarded to medical marijuana uh, growers, they've actually, one of them has actually been issued to um, a company that's actually going to be occupying that building. So they are doing things. Um, they are making efforts to find tenants. And, you know, obviously with the pandemic, I don't know what the status is of the medical marijuana industry in the United States, or I should say in Missouri. Yeah. But um, there is a licensee that has been issued to have one of the largest buildings on the Lent property go and occupy that building. Hmm. And well, they spent, I saw the receipts. I saw the amount of money that they spent they, personally. As you say, they spent more than a million on this. Yes, I saw that. We're talking to Chris Nafziger. He's an art historian, an architectural blogger, a columnist for St. Louis Magazine. And Chris, it sounds like you, uh, you're you very familiar with these buildings. You've written about yes. them now for years on end at, at St. Louis Magazine. I think in the last three years, this has been sort of a December focus for you. And, and you've been in there. It sounds like this owner has not at all been reticent to allow you in and, and to take a look around. Yeah, so basically, I think it was back in... in 2017, basically, the Palamans would hand me and Jason Gray uh, the keys to whichever building we wanted to photograph. Hmm. Uh, basically, the only restriction was is that we couldn't go in any tenant space. And they said, go, take pictures of whatever you want. And we were allowed basically in every single building. Uh, we were allowed to go into all the cellars. Uh, we were allowed to go into the cave. and. You know, these buildings are amazing. Uh, something that's very important to realize is that most of the most iconic building on the, on the brewery grounds are actually from the 20th century. They're actually built with reinforced concrete. Uh, hmm. The silos with, you know, that very iconic silos on Lemp, those are actually a lot of concrete. Um, the buildings right next to the building that collapsed on Sunday are actually reinforced concrete. Hmm. Um, remember, they were designed to hold just 
thousands of tons of beer, which is very heavy. And so they've actually been, for the last 100 years, relieved of a lot of the loads that they were actually designed to hold. Hmm. So they've actually kind of been given a break for over a century. Um, that building just to the south of the malt house that has, still has the shield is called the new fermenting house. Uh, they did a test. The deflection on the floor plates was three-eighths of an inch. When it was fully loaded, the concrete and the floor only deflected, meaning it only bended about three-eighths of an inch. So those buildings are built really strong. Hmm. Um, so, so did Mr. Palamon, did he have um, a, a big picture plan for all this going forward? Well, you know, I think you'd have to talk to him about that. I think for him, it was very much about conserving the buildings, um, you know, replacing the roof of the second bottling plant, um, which is now you know, the medical marijuana license. It was very much about them maintaining the buildings, keeping them in conditions where the redevelopment could happen at mm -hmm. some point. Um, it's a huge complex. It's not something that's going to be easy. Um, but you say he you know, had a real passion for this. This was something you could hear that excitement in his voice. Oh, yeah. I, I really think, I, I, I want to stress that there's a real love in the Palamon family for the Lent Brewery complex. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this is a huge setback, what happened on Sunday. Um, but I really do feel like they have the best intentions. Hmm. I really do. And I think it's important to have some historical context to this. I know history is, is something you know so much about. And um, unsurprisingly, for a building that is this old, this is not the Malt House's first calamity. What happened there in 1887? Well, so when it was under construction, um, there was actually an a, a construction accident where they dropped a girder. From what I can understand from uh, the newspaper articles, either the Post Dispatch or the Globe Democrat described, uh, it seems like uh, the crane might have slipped a little bit, and it actually dropped a, a girder, and it actually killed one person instantly, and I think I believe two other construction workers died at home. Um, so they're actually, you know, it's not really related to what happened on Sunday, but sure. yeah, there was actually a tragedy of, uh, during the construction. I do uh, find myself wondering, then. though, related to what happened on Sunday, you know, you mentioned they tacked on these three or four stories on top of this existing three stories. Is there any um, suspicion that maybe this wasn't a good idea, that you can't just go ahead and, and add a, a whole bunch of stories on top of the original design? Well, you know, I, I don't know. You know, and one thing that's very important is that if you look around the Lent Brewery, in fact, actually, if you look at the, the, uh, I guess it would be called the new Stockhouse. It's the building just to the east. It's that massive building right at that T intersection of Cherokee and Demonil Place. Mm -hmm. If you look on the back side of that building, it's actually incomplete. So we know for a fact, in fact, actually, the, the second uh, bottling plant is also incomplete. So we have physical proof that the Lemps planned ahead to build buildings to be added on to. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't discount the possibility that back in 1874, when they completed the first three stories of the malt kiln, that they did not build that building with the understanding structurally that they were going to add on to it in the future. Mm -hmm. It's something that's done around America. In fact, even I lived in Washington, D.C., there was a department store in downtown D.C. 
they'd actually built it originally to add additional office space on top of it. And it actually happened while I was living there. So <laughs> I wouldn't discount the possibility that that uh, original three-story malt kiln was not actually structurally built uh, to be added onto in the future. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I know that uh, the Lemp history and the architecture here, this has been a real passion for you, as I alluded to. You've written about this so much over the years. What is it about this legacy that fascinates you so much? Well, you know, you know that's a hard thing to really kind of... Uh, it's a big put question. Into words. I think it's just sort of the mystery. Beyond a doubt, the buildings up on the surface, what's so amazing is that they give sort of these clues to what's going on below. Hmm. Um, many of those buildings, and this is actually something that one of the uh, maintenance men remarked about, many of those buildings on the Lemp property go down as deep as they are tall. Hmm. Now, that's not necessarily the case for all of them. Like, uh, for example, the new stockhouse I just talked about actually only has one basement because it was built after the invention of refrigeration. But for example, the old fermenting house, it's, you know, 40 feet tall. It goes down 40 feet into the ground. It's as deep as it is tall. Um, in fact, uh, the malt kiln, malt house that we've been talking about for most of today, its cellars go down a good 50 feet into the ground. They're actually deeper than the famous cave. It's unbelievable. It's one of the most beautiful spaces in St. Louis. Wow. And it's perfectly preserved. Um, it was even designed actually to be added onto. You can actually see there's a spot where the cellars end and it's bricked up, but there's this little portal. And you can look in there and you can actually see the quarry marks. You can actually see where they had stopped digging into the bedrock and then they just put this little door on it. <laughs> but then refrigeration was invented, so they never needed to dig cellars that deep anymore. And all these calcium accretions and cave formations have started to form behind this little portal down in these cellars. And it's just this magnificent, you know, where humans and nature have sort of came into contact back in the 1870s. And now nature has taken back over. And it's, it's just absolutely stunning to see this in person. Boy, it is just so fascinating, all these stories that are right there in these materials and, and in these buildings. And as you say, these stories leading up to the present day, and this is now part of, of the Lemp building story. In our final, uh, I don't know, 30 seconds here, um, we're all gawking about this building. We're all talking about it. Do you think we have a tendency to not do that enough when it's time to still save stuff? We only like to look at it after the collapse. Well, definitely. I, you know, I think uh, the message I say time and time again um, Many people in St. Louis have stepped up. They've bought buildings that were in danger of being demolished and they saved them. If you have the money, if you have friends, if you want to advocate to save buildings, you're the best person to do it. Um, don't wait around for someone else to do the advocating to save that favorite historic building mm. of yours. And don't wait until after the collapse. It's, it's too late then. Right. Well, Chris Nafziger, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us again today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And Chris, again, columnist at, at St. Louis Magazine. He also has a great uh, architecture blog at St. Louis Patna. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.